everybody. We're we're excited to have you with us for the next 60 minutes. Um, we've got an absolutely amazing panel with us tonight. Uh, we've got Dr. Michael Devine, who's joining us from Arizona, who's a global world expert in uh, skin substitute. He's a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. Uh, so welcome to you, Dr. Devine. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, again, uh, Michael Devine is my name. I'm coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, again, my specialty is in plastic surgery and specifically wound reconstruction. So I'm excited to be here this evening. That's great. Thank you very much. And we've also got Dr. John Lantis joining us, who um, is one of the top vascular surgeons at Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Lantis, welcome to you as well. Thank you very much for, for joining the panel. Uh, and lastly, we've got Dr. Marcus uh, Wagstaff, who's joining us from Adelaide in Australia. Um, he's a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and he's head of the department there. So welcome to all three gentlemen. Thank you for this uh, really wonderful discussion we're going to be having on skin substitutes. Uh, so Dr. Devine, I'll come to you first, if you don't mind. Let's talk a little bit about um, experience that our global audience are going to need to make that right decision about which skin substitute they're going to use for which patient's defect, essentially. Sure. Well, you know, it's a tough um, problem and that we have so many options. And so um, the good news is we have options. The bad news is we have so many options. But I think it's all about the tissue forms and what your goal of therapy actually is. And so for every patient, I try to have a customized approach um, and thinking about what the tissue forms can do and how that uh, can allow me to achieve the goal with that specific patient, which many times is either a surgical healing and or secondary healing um, uh, with uh, allowing that healing secondarily. So I think we have options and I think now it's just good to know when to use what, and that is really the key question. Right, and really as plastic and reconstructive surgeons, we always have a variety of, of wound defects uh, to manage and these can be uh, you know ranging from burns to lower limb uh, degloving injuries uh, to road traffic accidents to uh, post kind of cancer reconstruction so um, in your practice at the moment what kind of patients are you generally using skin substitutes for type of wounds? Generally, I see a lot of chronic wounds uh, either venous uh, stasis ulcers um, lower extremity, traumatic uh, wounds, as well as uh, just soft tissue deficits, either from uh, severe necrotizing infection or sometimes cancer surgery. And so the use of uh, a skin substitute is really valuable. Some, sometimes it can allow me to avoid a, a larger, more complex procedure, such as a larger, more complex flap. Uh, sometimes I use it as a um, initial stage for autologous skin grafting. So it really gives us more options. And, and particularly as a plastic surgeon, I feel those options allow me to do more and sometimes with less. So with many of these patients who have so many comorbidities, it's really nice to have the option to perhaps not have to do the more complex uh, uh, flap reconstruction if I can get by and get to that same goal of healing uh, without the more complicated procedures. We're going to start with the definition of cellular and tissue-based products. Um, essentially, they can be um, divided into two main classes. Let me get this slide up. Um, so they can be either biological would generally have a more intact extracellular matrix structure, or they can be synthetic, which can be synthesized on demand and can be modulated for specific purposes. Cellular and tissue-based products, CTPs, are trying to mimic the extracellular matrix structure. 
in order to try and heal the wound. So gentlemen, shall we start with the definitions of the types of skin substitutes that our global audience need to know about? So Dr. Devine, can we start with you and your definition of amniotic products? Most of us are familiar with placental tissue and the benefits of amnion and chorion. Uh, we know the um, anti uh, adhesive effect that we talk about with scarring, the anti-inflammatory effect. Also important to note that antimicrobial effect. And I think this becomes particularly important in uh, any type of uh, reconstructive surgery where there's a high microbial burden, such as that we see with chronic wounds. So uh, would you like to tell our audience a little bit more about what a synthetic skin substitute is? Well, there's different types of skin, synthetic skin substitutes. Um, there's uh, sort of temporary and permanent ones um, and the temporary ones, you know, and some are biosynthetic and some are purely synthetic. Um, and um, the ones that, you know, you think of maybe biosynthetic would be uh, and temporary ones would be ones like BioBrain, which we use to, as a temporary uh, skin substitute and epithelial coverage. Um, we use that in superficial burns and also in our deep burns just to temporize the wound and uh, prevent evaporative water loss. So, um, and then, of course, you've got dermal substitutes, which are um, sort of active permanent uh, substitutes. And um, the one we use for that, as we say, as a synthetic one is, is BTM. And it's, it's the only really purely, and I think still, it's still the only purely synthetic um, dermal substitute. Um, and that's the one we've got the most experience in. So you're going to talk to us a little bit about acellular fish skin as one of the sort of, I guess we could class it as a biological skin substitute in the sense that it's uh, derived from a biological um, agent. Yeah, so we'll discuss uh, this as an extracellular matrix uh, coming from a xenograft, a non-human uh, source. And I definitely look forward to taking you through that today. Excellent. Right. And just looking back sort of two decades when we probably it was the start of skin substitutes coming in, possibly had only one or two at that uh, that stage. You know, I think Integra and Matriderm kind of were the, the first two that came into the, the realm of, of, of reconstruction. And really prior to that, people were essentially um, using flat reconstruction for the majority of these kind of defects. And then I guess we've moved a little bit onto perforator flaps and that's evolved the microsurgical side of things. Um, but how would you feel in your practice over the last kind of two decades in terms of your choosing skin substitutes? How has that changed from maybe previously doing microsurgical transfer and how is that? It's really interesting, Megan, because it, as you said, things have evolved and what we used to call our plastic surgery reconstructive ladder has changed. And because we have these options such as skin substitutes as well as other technology to include placental allografts, it really has enabled us to do more with less. And so I do a lot less uh, microsurgical uh, free tissue transfer. Um, and now even my local tissue flaps and regional flaps, sometimes I can use a, a smaller flap um, to get by with uh, the use of this additional scaffolding, such as a skin substitute. So I think that really, um, and again, in combination, as you'll see in my cases, I love the advantage of synergistically using uh, tissue forms together to get an even better outcome. And so placental tissue, we know the benefits with regard to wound healing, but I think sometimes that combination along with our skin substitutes and dermal substitutes gives us an even greater advantage. 
It's amazing. And uh, so do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience with the sort of placental uh, type products? I mean, also, yes, go ahead. I would love to. I, I do have some cases I'd love to share. Um, I think that the advantage of, uh, again, the uh, benefits, we you know, of the properties of placental tissue in wound healing um, also um, comes into play with surgical reconstruction. And that combination with um, dermal substitutes also creates a, what I like to say, one plus one is not two, but one plus one is 10, because we get an even uh, more exponential effect when combining tissue forms. Yes. So again, uh, my specialty is plastic and reconstructive surgery, but I'm also a wound uh, clinician as well. And so again, that combination of specialties really has embraced the use of uh, these uh, uh, tissue forms to allow me to perform better surgeries. Um, I speak for the MTF Biologics uh, company. And so uh, important to note that these products are um, uh, sort of a part of their portfolio. Um, and again, it's a wound care portfolio that I've started utilizing for um, soft tissue reconstruction. And so one of the first things I, I like to start with is really explaining that uh, the processing of tissue does make a difference. Um, Negan had mentioned all of the different options of skin substitutes, as well as placental tissue, in fact, that are available to us, and I think it's important noting how tissue is processed, um, specifically the um, aseptic processing um, that is utilized in the MTF Biologics portfolio allows uh, uh, the same sterility uh, with regard to um, uh, microbial burden, but it does not alter the tissue properties of the native tissue that terminal sterilization results in. So I think that's so important, especially as we're looking at both the placental tissue as well as the dermal um, uh, reconstructive uh, skin substitutes. So I tend to utilize a algorithmic approach. And what I mean by that is I mentioned about customizing the different tissue forms based on the goal of therapy. And I think with every patient, you have a specific idea of what you'd want the tissue forms to do. And so wound management, we have heard and, and know a lot about the benefits of placental tissue, specifically in the MTF portfolio, the amnioband membrane has gotten quite a bit of data collection showing the benefits, um, is particularly in the diabetic foot ulcer, as well as in uh, venous stasis ulcers. But I want to mention the use of placental tissue, specifically the ciliary mini membrane uh, with regard to incisional management. And what I mean by that is surgical incisions that we are aiming to um, allow for primary healing without a secondary infection and or dehiscence. Uh, additionally, sometimes I'll utilize these uh, placental tissues to assist when I'm anticipating a, a, a post-operative complication in that I want to make sure that wound bed is adequately prepared to allow for secondary healing. Um, and then also sometimes in anticipating a post-surgical complication, I'm also looking at that use of a dermal matrix that then may um, overlie a, an important deep uh, soft tissue or bony prominence um, where I want to make sure that I have a wound bed that I can get to heal without necessarily performing a second surgery. Uh, and then lastly, looking at optimizing any surgical outcome. And again, this is where the combination therapy comes into play, where the placental tissue will allow for cellular proliferation with all the properties, uh, antimicrobial, uh, angiogenic, as well as that proliferative uh, property in combination with a dermal uh, substitute such as somogen, which can then allow for uh, soft tissue scaffolding. 
So again, in looking at the placental tissue with the solera mini membrane, you know, it comes in a micronized form. So it's very easily utilized, uh, perhaps over a split thickness skin graft. And I want to share a case. Uh, this was a 72-year-old gentleman who presented with uh, severe uh, venous stasis ulcer disease. He was being seen and followed uh, in the wound clinic by one of my wound care partners. And you can see the extent of disease where this extends obviously into the deep soft tissue. And these uh, wounds, of course, were very difficult to debride uh, in, in the office setting. And ultimately, we had to take him to the operating room for surgical debridement. So after surgical debridement, uh, this was performed again in the operating room, and then I proceeded with negative pressure wound therapy to assist with wound bed preparation. And then after 72 hours of therapy, um, I brought him back uh, for potential uh, autologous skin grafting. I want you to note here, because um, while the wound was certainly much improved with regard to necrotic debris, there were areas that were fibrotic. Again, this was a chronic wound for some time. Um, so you can see the areas of fibrosis where we have some early granulation tissue, I would say it wasn't quite optimized for split thickness skin grafting. However, because of the patient comorbidities, I felt that if I could get at least partial take of the graft that it was worthwhile. And so I proceeded with autologous skin grafting. And then this is the placement of the placental um, uh, tissue, which is the solera mini membrane to try to optimize take of the graft. And again, my thought process at the time is if I got even 50% of graft take, I'd be more likely to get the wound to heal secondarily. And this was one of my first cases using the solera mini membrane over a split thickness skin graft. Uh, again, this uh, bolster with negative pressure was utilized over the skin graft. And this is just a simple collagen dressing over the donor site. But I was uh, very pleasantly surprised at seven days post uh, skin grafting. Um, I saw um, complete adherence of the graft, um, which I was very um, uh, pleasantly surprised because I was concerned about some slough. Um, but this actually went on to heal uneventfully. This is uh, the skin graft at six weeks. You see the maturity of the graft as the fenestrations of the mesh are pretty well closed. And I think this was at least partially an effect of this uh, placental tissue with this solar mini membrane. So with that, I want to introduce this use of skin substitutes and specifically somogen um, with soft tissue reconstruction. And again, somogen is slightly different than some of the other dermal uh, matrices on the market. Uh, this comes in a three to one meshed pattern. It's really designed to be utilized with negative pressure wound therapy. And because it comes from the deeper level of dermis, what we call the reticular dermis, there is no polarity. So it can be placed on either side. And additionally, it can be covered over either closed over primarily or under a soft tissue flap. And I'll uh, share with you the benefits of that. So again, this is the uh, dermal matrix that's coming from the deeper level of dermis, which is the reticular dermis. This allows for more open porous structure, which then enhances the ability of the tissue form to incorporate into the deeper soft tissue. Again, utilizing this algorithmic approach, I mentioned the use of the uh, dermal matrix, specifically somogen, as not only a dermal replacement, but also soft tissue scaffolding. And specifically that can be utilized again under uh, flaps for soft tissue reconstruction. 
But I want to share, this was a case that I did of a necrotizing soft tissue infection that we debrided and ultimately used the somogen as a scaffolding prior to autologous skin grafting. And again, what's so important about this particular dermal matrix is that it completely incorporates into the deep soft tissue. So this is after seven days of negative pressure therapy after the uh, graft was placed in the operating room. You can see after subsequent weeks, you see more of the granulation tissue. But what's important to note, particularly you can see this at week four, that the scaffolding of the graft remains, meaning it's not that the graft is being absorbed and just dumping the matrix proteins, but that graft and scaffolding is really serving as a structural unit that is helping to build upon uh, more soft tissue. So at the end of six weeks, that graft is completely incorporated. You can almost see it through that granulation tissue because again, it is still present. It has not gone away or been absorbed. So you can see the effect of that where you have a much lesser soft tissue deficit. And now when you do an autologous skin grafting, it's to the surface of that wound bed. So keeping that in mind of this true incorporation without any polarity, I started utilizing this uh, um, dermal uh, replacement in conjunction with my flap surgery. And I'll share a case with you. This is a, a patient who presented with multiple pressure ulcers. You can see the sacral ulcer goes down to the bone, but additionally also had an ischial ulcer that went to the level of muscle. Uh, this was treated again in a stage procedure. Initial excisional debridement was performed with both ulcers uh, followed by negative pressure therapy to reduce the uh, wound uh, and bacterial burden. After seven days, the wound was clean. Um, I was then able to proceed with uh, definitive flap uh, coverage. Um, I, the first part of this I want to mention is this partial ostectomy that is performed to remove any uh, non-viable bone. And then on the ischial ulcer, it did not extend to bone, but of course, to the deep soft tissue. Um, but prior to my um, actual placement of the somogen on the slide to your left, on that exposed bone, I did utilize the placental salera uh, mini membrane to help reduce any um, additional microbial burden uh, of the residual bone. And then the somogen reticular dermal matrix was then placed as a scaffolding. And one of the reasons that I did that for this patient is that this was an ambulatory patient. His paraplegia was thought to be transient because of a COVID. Um, inflammatory response. And so I did not want to utilize muscle um, that would interfere with his ability to ambulate once he recovered. Uh, again, just showing the use of this uh, Solera placental mini membrane. This has also been placed now in the area of the ischial ulcer. Uh, and then uh, each uh, of the incisions are closed, the flap incision on the sacrum, and then primary closure of the uh, ischial wound. A negative pressure was utilized uh, to assist with incisional management. And then at four weeks, he went on to heal uneventfully. Additionally, uh, this is a case of left ischial pressure ulcer. Similarly, uh, came in with an acute infection uh, taken to the operating room uh, for initial debridement, followed by negative pressure therapy for wound bed preparation. Uh, he was brought back after several days, again, for definitive management. A muscle flap here uh, was uh, mobilized. As you can see, the deep soft tissue tunneling into the area of the pelvic bone. Uh, you can see, again, a deep uh, soft tissue deficit. 
Um, initially, the uh, placental uh, solera mini membrane is being placed again right over the exposed bone following that partial uh, bone removal. Um, and then I utilize a, a urinary bladder matrix in addition to help fill that tunneled uh, dead space. The somogen dermal reticular matrix was then utilized again as a soft tissue scaffolding. Uh, additional solera mini membrane placental allograft was then placed. Uh, and then uh, the uh, flap and incision was then closed uh, uh, with uh, skin staples. Negative pressure was utilized for incisional management. And again, he went on to heal uneventfully. The next case is that of a 42-year-old uh, female who presented with incomplete uh, quadriplegia. Uh, again, uh, very significant sacral ulcer extending to bone. Um, in this case, it wasn't acutely infected, so I was able to proceed with an initial excisional uh, uh, of the ulcer followed by partial ostectomy. And then again, over that um, underlying bone, I utilized the Solera mini membrane uh, specifically to enhance uh, the um, microbial control over the exposed bone. The uh, somogen reticular dermal matrix is then placed again as an additional soft tissue scaffolding. I wanna mention, um, difficult to see from these pictures, but this is a relatively thin patient and even with utilizing muscle, she still had a paucity of soft tissue. So the matrix is being used to help uh, additionally build up the soft tissue deficit. Again, the solera mini membrane placental allograft is placed over that um, uh, dermal matrix and then uh, the flap is then closed. Patient was treated with uh, negative pressure for incisional management, um, but as mentioned, um, typically these patients will uh, go to a care facility for four to six weeks. In this case, the patient did uh, refused a care facility and elected to go home. Um, unfortunately, she returned um, at 21 days because she had a wound to his sense. Um, but I want to share as she came into the clinic, it got a, a, the advantage for us is that we got to actually see the uh, somogen reticular dermal matrix completely incorporated uh, into that deep soft tissue. So again, this is that sacral wound. She's in a lateral decubitus disposition. And rather than seeing exposed sacral bone, I'm now looking at that healthy appearance of a wound bed with the incorporated somogen matrix. And the advantage of this is that in the clinic, rather than her needing additional surgery, I was able to proceed with a simple uh, secondary closure um, in the clinic. This next case is that of a, uh, a wound of the scalp. This is a 57-year-old woman who unfortunately had a history of lupus. And the thought was that this initial wound was from her ongoing lupus and she was treated with um, steroids for, for several years to try to get this wound to heal. You can see on the scalp, she has exposed bone. Um, and uh, after several years of non-healing, um, she was referred to me. And then I proceeded to take her to the operating room after getting her off the steroids uh, for um, flap management. So she's now face down on the table. You can see the area of the uh, non-healing wound is marked for primary excision. And then this additional markings for rotational flap that will be utilized to cover the soft tissue deficit. So once the wound is excised, um, you can see that the galea, which is again, that deeper level um, of the scalp right over the uh, periosteum, uh, here it's intact, but right over where the uh, 
chronic wound was, it was completely denuded. And so the good news is that she had healthy bleeding bone. Um, but again, you can see on a close-up here that that galea was completely uh, denuded. And so in this case, the rotational flap was elevated. Again, you can see the galea of the um, uh, intact tissue from the flap is intact. But again, we have now exposed um, uh, bone here because not only the, is the galea gone, but the periosteum was denuded as well. So prior to my flap inset, I utilized the Celera mini membrane placental allograft, again, over that exposed bone to reduce my mi microbial burden and help to potentiate a healing of the surgical site. Uh, the somogen dermal matrix was then utilized again underneath the flap. It is essentially serving and replacing what has been uh, denuded with that galea and periosteum. And so, again, not only will this help to give me more soft tissue scaffolding, but I'm also thinking ahead and anticipating if I have a postoperative uh, uh, dehiscence, then at least I will have potentially this incorporated somogen and perhaps I can still allow her to heal secondarily. So this is the flap and then inset and then closed on the operating room table. Um, and then she was able to go on to heal without any additional surgery. And this is her incision at three months. So in summary, uh, you know, as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and wound clinician, I, I feel that the placental uh, allografts as well as the uh, human reticular dermal matrices um, really can assist not only with wound uh, care, but also with surgical wound reconstruction. Um, I feel that the meshed human reticular A um, cellular dermal matrix has specific properties, particularly um, because it's coming from the reticular level, that deeper level that allows for tissue integration and incorporation. Um, as a result, those patients with soft tissue deficits that require surgical reconstruction may indeed benefit from both the aseptically processed placental allograft as well as the use of the reticular acellular dermal matrices for additional scaffolding and or support. Um, the use of the reticular dermal matrix in these patients may help create a scaffolding uh, for tissue ingrowth that may help to support uh, soft tissue flap transfer. But additionally, as, as shown in that one case, if a dehiscence does occur, the use of the reticular dermal matrix may allow for an adequate soft tissue coverage uh, that may allow for a secondary healing without the need perhaps for surgical um, uh, reconstruction. And, and again, thank you again. And the Wounder Masterclass is, uh, I'm excited to be a part of this. Um, but I'd love to take any questions at this time. Thank you very much, Dr. Devine. This was uh, really an amazing talk on the versatility of these type of products. And it's just, uh, it's a real eye-opener to see that wounds that previously would have not been amenable to such sort of straightforward reconstructions previously these ones with the bone exposure and tendon exposure etc would have by default would have been taught that those need to have flap coverage essentially so it's been a real game changer sort of skin substitutes and and being able to apply them to all these different clinical scenarios uh, can i ask you how what's your experience in um actually handling these products in terms of as a surgeon how how easy has it been to kind of contour to the defects, to kind of handle the products? How are they stored generally? Or how do you do them in a practical practical sense in your operating? 
The somogen reticular dermal matrix, um, it comes in a preservative solution. It's designed so that it's ready to use um, out of the package. I do rinse it with normal saline to get rid of any of the um, solution that it's being preserved in. Um, mm -hmm. But it it's comes ready to use, so we keep it on hand in my operating room uh, in the uh, supply area. And so that during my cases or when I have cases scheduled, typically I have uh, that available as well as the placental um, uh, allograph with the Celera. The Celera also comes ready to use. Again, I mentioned it comes in this mini membrane form. The benefit of that mini membrane, I, I think you get a little more bang for your buck because I can spread that area. I kind of call it uh, miracle powder or fairy dust because I spread that throughout an area and it allows me to get more kind of surface area coverage. Um, you mentioned, again, I think importantly that sometimes there are hard areas to get to or um, sometimes it's difficult. And so I think the ability of that mini membrane uh, really allows a, a more um, expansive uh, a coverage of the, of the surface. Yeah, I've yet to participate in a webinar where we haven't had that phrase, bang for your buck. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> If I don't, if I don't hear it near the end of a webinar, I'm almost, you know, <laughs> thinking what's wrong. <laughs> but I, I was. Think, thinking... I, think that, I think nowadays we always have to think about the economics of healthcare because. Oh, absolutely! It really well illustrates the kind of concept. But uh, when you use the meshed product, is that meshed one to three? Is it similar to obviously the old style? skin graft mesh, meshing or not quite typically I, most of us and myself included i usually will mesh one and a half to one this is a three to one and it's mesh but it's mesh in a different way than we typically mesh in the operating room um, mtf biologics does have a proprietary um, technique that they utilize to create the fenestration and if you actually look at it close up, it looks more like an octagon than it does uh, a pie crust. And mm -hmm. the reason that's so important is that it allows for even greater expansion. I think they now have reported a greater than 150% expansion. And again, going back to the economics, um, that becomes very helpful so that you don't have to utilize as much tissue form um, to get that same coverage. And again, because of that, those fenestrations, it's really conducive and designed to be used with negative pressure therapy which I think is a, a, a very a huge benefit. And it's uh, it's really interesting that you've used this sort of synergy example where this kind of, I guess, technique of, of using this type of skin substitute can be used in synergy with negative pressure. Wound therapy can be used in synergy with, obviously, other aspects. So what do you think has been the, the most important, um, I guess, plus of, of this type of product versus, I guess, using a, a different type of skin substitute? Well, I think um, you mentioned it, um, the fenestrations and the, and the ability to utilize with negative pressure therapy. And um, for even if it's not a plastic surgeon, if it's a, um, a wound clinician or a surgeon who is you know, doing some type of soft tissue coverage and they're trying to get that uh, graph to incorporate the negative pressure is is better utilized when you have fenestrations of the graph. There are other skin substitutes that have, um, you know, either they're not meshed and or they have an additional uh, bilayer. And, and I think that becomes a, a relative downside to be utilized with negative pressure therapy. There's a lot of good skin substitutes on the market, but my preference is one that number one will incorporate into the deep soft tissue. And number two, that I can use 
um, not just safely with negative pressure therapy, but I really get all of the benefits that we know of negative pressure therapy. And so I think that combination to me is really what creates uh, a very unique uh, tissue form that I can utilize for many different uh, indications. Thank you very much, Dr. Devine. Really grateful for you to bring this experience to our um, audience. And for our audience out there, I know you're joining us from uh, many different countries. So we would love to hear your questions and hear about your clinical practice and how often are you using this type of uh, skin substitute or are you using different types? We would love to hear uh, more about your practice. Um, so we're going to now go on to a different topic. Don't forget to ask your questions in the text. Uh, below on your screen, just type in the question to ask uh, our global panelists any questions you have about the presentation so far. And, and next, we're going to talk about synthetic skin substitutes. Uh, so we'll come across to you, Associate Professor Marcus Wagstaff. Joining us uh, from Australia, we've got Associate Professor Marcus Wagstaff. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello, thank you very much. And uh, you have an absolute wealth of experience in this specialist area of skin substitutes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your work so far? Oh, sure. Well, look, I'm I'm a consultant plastic surgeon in Adelaide, Australia, and uh, I'm head of the Burns Unit now, uh, have been for the last three years. Um, and um, really, when BTM uh, was being invented uh, and created and developed by John Greenwood and Polynovo, um, back in 2011, that's when I started doing the research with them, uh, and was you know the first among the first to put it into into humans, and then we developed the protocols and the use, and actually further developed the product as a result of that, and uh, been used, using it ever since. So that's now been wow, um, sort of 12 years of of use. Now we've got a lot of experience, a lot of lessons learned, uh, a lot of lot of messages to pass on. Fantastic. And to our global audience who are watching uh, from all over the world, any questions you have, please put that in the chat for us throughout uh, this whole period of this uh, session today. And uh, we shall answer the questions as we go along. So I'll hand over to you now, uh, Dr. Wagstaff, and you can tell us uh, your experience. With regards to uh, this talk, I principally made it on uh, BTM because that's the skin substitute that we, we really have got something to offer in terms of passing on knowledge. Um, and BTM stands for the Biodegradable Temporizing Matrix, and I'll come to that in a moment. This is the work uh, performed at the Royal Adelaide Hospital in Australia. And my conflict of interest uh, is down on the bottom left. I'm a shareholder for Polynova Biomaterials, who make BTM, and I'm paid a retainer and hourly fee for consultancy work for them. However, they've had no input uh, on the title or content of this presentation. So what is the Biodegradable Temporizing Matrix? Well, it's a two millimeter uh, bioabsorbable, biocompatible foam. Um, and uh, it's basically on the top surface of it, there's a non-biodegradable polyurethane seal, which is fenestrated and allows fluid egress. The key point is that this is a dermal substitute. It is not dermis and it's not biological, but it is there to recreate a dermis when dermis is missing. Um, from a plastic surgical point of view, it can turn a split thickness skin graft into a full thickness skin graft by replacing the dermis underneath it. Um, and alternatively, uh, it can cover over structures that are deeper, such as bone, tendons, and bridge those uh, by giving a scaffold into which the body can grow. So the subtext from my point of view is how does this actually work? Well, it is a scaffolding. It's a bit like the scaffolding you put outside your house and the workmen go in it. 
Um, when you put the scaffolding on a clean wound, granulation tissue can enter it. Uh, it goes in through the pores up two millimeters and fills, the, fills those pores with blood vessels, fibroblasts and collagen. Um, if it's not there and you get blood vessels and fibroblasts and collagen, what happens is the collagen is laid down in layers and then the fibroblasts pull on the collagen like ropes and causing a tug of war, which effectively causes wound contraction. However, by putting it by, by this tissue being placed into the silos or the pores of this uh, matrix, that doesn't happen. The, the collagen's in whirls and, and there is no there is no ropes for the, the, the fibroblasts to pull on. So you don't get the wound contraction and the the seal stops that tissue from coming onto the surface. And therefore, you don't get collagen laid down rapidly. And in fact, as soon as you take the seal off within a few days, if you let it granulate on the surface, you do get wound contraction because that's the phenomenon you're seeing. So it kind of modifies granulation and scar tissue to form a layer that's very similar to dermis. Once you've debrided a wound that's missing dermis and you want a thicker reconstruction, you simply apply BTM by doing edge-to-edge -edge apposition with staples. We put it under more slight tension and fit it around any limbs, rather like fitting a garment. The seal is on the upper side. Over about the period of about two to two to five weeks, depending on various, uh, like the age of the patient or the physiological status, the tissue grows into the foam and you can just see capillary refill there. And then it can be, the top seal can be delaminated off and it's very much like pulling Velcro. Um, and you can see the seal is coming off there and there's a really nice bed onto which, vascularized bed onto which to place a skin graft. And this BTM was placed on fat, so. What you can see there is the sort of dermal-like structure onto which you can skin graft, nice and flush with the surface. Now, the first burn patients that we place this on, this is the these are photographs of the first three burn patients, and these are the areas where skin graft was not applied. When we used to do burns, we used to um, take the big burns, you know, anything above sort of thirty percent or so. We would debride everything, put a dressing on, then take them back to theatre then harvest all the skin grafts we could and put the skin grafts on wide meshed onto the any areas we could really. And then anything left over, we would put a dermal substitute on. And this is what we did with these patients. And the areas you're looking at here is the areas where the dermal substitute wasn't placed, but the areas where skin graft was. So um, you can see the cobblestone appearance, the thickened scars um, and the hypertrophy scars on the first three patients of the BTM trial. Now, on the next slide, I'm going to show you what they look like in the areas where BTM was placed, mainly on the limbs and a couple more patients. Now, these photographs were taken on the same day as these photographs. So patient one to three are the same patients you saw on the slide before. And you can see a patient one taken at day 536 on the back of his thigh. There's a nice sort of a soft and a robust cover of the posterior thigh patient two who's on the top right corner of the previous slide, taken at day 368, and you can see he's got, uh, again, a supple reconstruction of his arm. It's hard to appreciate that on the slide. I, I, I appreciate that, but it certainly looks nicer than the, uh, the trunk shot of his taken on the same day. And also this gentleman on a uh, patient three, um, that whole, almost that whole dorsum of forearm uh, has been reconstructed with BTM and skin graft, and you can just see the mesh pattern just at the wrist there. And again, compare, comparing that to his trunk, 
uh, on a photograph taken the same day where the trunk was primarily grafted. Patient four and patient five were the other patients in the burn trial. And the key with patient five was that his whole back was treated with um, VTM and split skin graft. And up to this point, we found it very difficult to manage um, uh, dermal substitutes uh, in the supine patient, but he was nurse supine and uh, and he got a really nice result. And in fact, since then, we've learned that um, lying on BTM, it actually leads to a very nice, uh, a nice result and good integration. This is again patient one. This is the quality of his reconstruction of his arm at day 369. And the, the little stitch there is from a punch biopsy. It's good, robust, thick, supple reconstruction. The other thing we learned was that we could, in the Burns patients, that we could um, cover skull uh, and expose deep structures such as bones and tendons. And then this, this gentleman was a burn victim who had a, a widespread exposed calvarium with no um, pericranium on. And there was no uh, recipient vessels for a free flap because his whole neck was burned as well, as well as the sides of his face. So it was decided to burr down uh, the, the outer table to the diploic space and apply uh, BTM. You can see over the, the ensuing days and up to day 43, when he was finally delaminated, that he actually integrated the BTM and that tissue went into the pores and up to the seal. And here you can see capillary refill within the matrix. So he was delaminated that day and the skin graft was applied. And that took quite quickly. Uh, and this, the, the two photos on the right are uh, the appearance of the BTM at day 25 and the one on the on the left, sorry, and the one on the right uh, is at day 382. And he still has a reconstruction uh, to this day. But it wasn't until day 15, uh, sorry, patient 15 um, of the burn patients uh, who had had primary skin grafting to the trunk and at the same time BTM applied and then later the skin graft was applied to the BTM once it had integrated, and that was on his arm. And you can see that really the difference side to side, uh, even the late changes of um, the tide mark between the BTM and the primary skin graft. And that's where we started to really think about this, because we'd always been taught that if you don't get your grafts to take and your wound reconstructed within, say, three weeks of your burn, then you're going to get very bad hypertrophic scarring. And that mostly goes down to a study in, in, uh, in children. And this really made us challenge that theory because these graphs were going on way after three weeks. Um, and so we wondered what it would be like if we actually reconstructed, we actually reconstructed the whole burn with BTM, waited three or four weeks, and then applied um, the skin graft to the skin graft to the whole burn. And the main thing that uh, that spurred us on to do this was the patient himself. He turned around and says, Well, why did you why did you put these skin grafts on my chest? And and the BTM on my arm, I'd much rather you to put BTM on everything. And so we changed our practice. Um, so when we get a major burn in now, we immediately excise the whole burn because it's toxic. And then we dress that with a, a, just a temporary dressing. And then about two days later, we go back to the operating theater, we re-excise and we apply BTM to all the wounds. Now, sometimes to get early mobility, we'll put some grafts on the back of the hands or if we're worried about the neck, we might put some skin grafts on the neck in case they need a future tracheostomy. But basically we apply BTM to all the major areas. This is simpler than grafting. It's much quicker um, and it's uh, less invasive and there's, no, there's much less blood on the floor. 
And of course, the intensive care nurses aren't dealing with sloppy dressings for, for the donor sites and the pain is reduced post-op. And during that post-op period, you've got three or five weeks of cooling off with the patient. So you can get nutrition in, you can get their, their joints moving, get them up to a full range of movement. All their superficial burns can heal. So you've got more donor site when you do come to graft. Patient is uh, fully mobilized, systemically stronger, extubated through all the complications of major burns, such as renal failure and, and, uh, and respiratory failure. And they're in a much better condition to start reconstructing. And therefore, you get much more reliable and faster graft take and donor healing. So we say don't do today what that which can honorably be put off until tomorrow. This is a lady who had uh, significant burns and we debrided entirely the burns in the first sitting, applied BTM two days later, and then we were able to skin graft her when she'd integrated about three to five weeks later. And you can see the result again, very pleasing. She's, she's had no breast reconstructions. Those are her breasts, there's no contraction of them. And uh, she can get her arms high in the air and she's got a great um, reconstruction of her neck with a, with a good cervical mental angle. She's very pleased with the result. So for me in burn, surgery's become a lot less stressful and tiring. The results feel that they've got more reliable and the quality, quality of scarring has improved. So I'm very, very happy with the way the BTM has changed our practice. The question I always get asked is, does BTM ever get infected? And the answer is, well, BTM does prevent dressing activity or physical cleaning of the wound act, uh, interface and colonized wounds can form collections under BTM. And it tends to happen if it's going to happen in about the second week. But I think of BTM as like the Petri dish, whereas the underlying tissue is the agar. So BTM doesn't get infected. It's the underlying tissue that gets infected. But the interesting, interesting thing is that BTM being synthetic doesn't get digested. So the wound can integrate if the BTM collections are drained. Here's an example. This gentleman's got a burn patient with Pseudomonas aeruginosa collecting under the BTM. This is the first patient where we really demonstrated this phenomenon where you can make cuts in the seal and drain out the pus. And that's what we did. And over time, we documented it with photographs and you can see that, um, that it just basically drains out through the cuts and, um, and the expressions and then slowly and surely it integrates. And here's an example of what we do. So just make a cut in the seal. You just push the pus out. We send them off for microbiology. And then we massage it out just by with a rolled gauze or just the the um, the finger hole of a pair of scissors just to, to massage out the pus through the hole or to the edge of the BTM. Get it all nice and clean. And then we give it a really good scrub down with some chlorhexidine. You can use saline, you can use betadine, whatever you like. Give it a clean, and the BTM's nice and clear. And you just do that twice a week, and it's normally in the second week. And if you get it past um, two weeks, then, and you're into the third week, um, basically, you'll watch the integration, push it all out, and it doesn't tend to be a problem. So moving on to, so we talked about burns and, and really how we came about to get a feeling for the use of BTM, but really we use a lot in wounds and it's part of my toolkit now. Now I'm a plastic surgeon, microsurgeon, I do local flaps, regional flaps, free flaps. So um, and this hasn't really replaced them. It just, it just gives me another option for when things get really difficult. So there are indications for its use. One of them is where you have deep wounds that are unable to support a skin graft. So where there's exposed bone or exposed tendon or exposed deep structures, for example, the IJV, or wounds that are susceptible to graft contracture, you know, such as across the joints or across the neck. 
Um, and then also sometimes free flaps are a great idea, but they're sometimes they're very bulky, for example, on the dorsum of the foot or on the neck. And so, you know, free flap results aren't that great. And so BTM can offer a, a different alternative. And the other thing is, it's great doing free flaps again, but not if the patient's really fundamentally unwell. Whereas if you want to do a quick procedure, it involves a debridement of putting on of a temporizing dressing, well, BTM can do that for you and you can put it on within an hour. So I'll give you an example. Here's a neck. This lady had necrotizing fasciitis and the bottom left is what, what her wound looked like after the first debridement with a Penrose drain in it. You can see the internal jugular vein just under there. And over time, we were planning to do a free ALT flap when she was fit. And over time, she was slowly starting to granulate as we took her back to theatre and made sure we had wound control. But once we got wound control, she was still on the ICU and still intubated with a streptococcal pneumonia. So we really didn't want to take her to theatre for a free flap. So we just put BTM on to see what would happen. And it's uh, integrated nicely. Um, and after about five weeks, and we were much slower waiting for integration in those days because we wanted to wait. You can probably We probably could have delaminated it sooner. However, now this is on the left there, that's what a free flap looks like on a neck, um, the complete loss of the cervical mental angle. And on the right, that's what a primary skin graft looks like on a burnt neck with tightness uh, and contracture. This is what her neck looks like. And it's supple. And this is at four months. This is a supple, mobile, and she's got good sort of contour of her neck. Here's another example, another necrotizing fasciitis, 47-year-old gentleman, debrided, BTM applied about, about a week after the, uh, after the first debridement. And again, his result, uh, day 266. He's part of our necrotizing fasciitis series paper. So just looking at the different areas of the body, this is an example of the head. This gentleman's got a 61-year-old male with a hemangioma that we did last year, smelly, uh, colonized, um, just really, really uh, unpleasant um, lesion, but still it's only a hemangioma. And we decided to debulk this after scans and so on, and also after some interventional radiology just to cut off the blood supply. And we debrided him down to the skull. It was very scarred, very, again, very unpleasant, very smelly, cleaned it up, put BTM on at the same operation. The specimen weighed 2.2 kilograms, as I remember. Now, even at day 11, you can see the BTM is profoundly cut full of pus, and this pus is E. coli. Uh, and so we massaged it and waited. And by day 35, you can see it's fully integrated. No BTM was removed. So you just have to be patient and get the pus out, but the, the body will push it out eventually. Uh, day 35 was when we delaminated and grafted him. And you can see uh, he's got a good result from his, um, from his skin grafts. This lady, again, BTM is all about solving problems. This lady is on her, this is her second free flap and then her third free flap placed on after uh, exposure of a plate from a previous meningioma. She's very old. This is a palliative operation, but we really couldn't go for another free flap. So the plate was removed. The flat dead flap was taken off and the plate was removed down to Dura. And that's what her defect looked like down to Dura. So we do really didn't know how we could reconstruct this now, having had three free flaps and the last one failing. Um, and so BTM was applied. And I used a bit of tissue just to stick this down because I clearly couldn't staple it to the dura. And over time it integrated. And again, she's got you know, not an entirely healed wound, but a good wound and it's enough to get her back to her nursing home and palliator. And, um, 
this was a you know this is the biggest area of dura uh, we've ever done. Moving down to the arm, upper limb. This gentleman uh, had a crush injury to his arm from a harvester and a, a ripped avulsion injury. And, and the first plan was to he also had a wrist fracture, but the first plan was to skin graft. However, that didn't go so well because you know the skin graft didn't take over those tendons. Uh, and so a month after the injury, it became apparent that we need to do something, but he had no local options. Could have done a regional flap, but really, you know, his arm was woody. Nobody really wanted to do a free flap on him. So we thought we'd just try BTM. And we got that to integrate, and that took fine. And this lady is a 32-year-old lady. She was delivering her child when she had a massive postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, she needed cross-clamping and, and uh, revascularization of her upper limb. Um, during that, uh, during the, the inotropes, she had uh, an extravasation on the hand, which killed all the tissue on the hand. Um, and day 26, we, she went, once we, everything had declared, she went for debridement, and that was the wound she had underneath. And don't forget, she's just had a child. So we really don't want to keep her in hospital a long time with groin flaps stuck to her hip. And, and she's not a good candidate for free flap, given she had a revascularization. So... Once debrided, we put BTM on and we had the opportunity now to send her home, but also bring her back once a week and advise her regarding hand movement. So by the time we put the skin graft on, she was up to a full range of movement. So this is just three months after the BTM was put on. She's got a full range of movement. She's at home and caring for her newborn. Moving on to the trunk, necrotizing fasciitis, three exposed uh, ribs after a four quarter amputation. It's about day 11 after the... Uh, initial debridement, brittle diabetic. And the key, and we drilled the ribs to get some bleeding, put the BTM on. And the key I wanna show you here is she's standing absolutely upright. There's no contracture pulling her down um, at a year post-op. Uh, and although you can see, it still looks like she's, she has a, a, a gouge out of there. You know, there, there is a contour defect, but it's stable and um, there's no sort of hypertrophic bands causing her problems and pain. This lady was headbutted with a sheep, which is a school teacher, and um, that caused necrotizing fasciitis for which she had her leg taken off um, uh, or disarticulated at the acetabulum. So you could, that, that hole you can see is her acetabulum. So she went for debridement of multiple sessions of VAC and then BTM applied to give a better cover of the defect. And then after two years, you can see she's now got an osseointegrated implant into the ischium. She's actually started riding horses now. This gentleman, now we're moving down onto the leg. This gentleman uh, tore off the, evulsed the, the skin and off the dorsum of his foot, exposing the tendons with uh, the uh, without paratenin, and he's got an exposed first tarsal metatarsal joint. And we just thought, well, we didn't really want to put a free flap on this because a free flap would be bulky. And that's what a free flap looks like on the foot. You know, these are our cases. That's a latissimus dorsi flap, and the one on the right is an ALT flap, which I've since refined. However, his result um, using BTM, and we waited nine weeks for this to integrate over the tendons. But again, he was at home during that period, and he can wiggle his toes, and you can see on the ultrasound his FHL and EHL tendon, excuse me, is intact. And the photograph above, he's got a, a, a nice um, contour of his foot. And he's able, obviously able to get a shoe on. This is a, a typical sort of road traffic accident with a femoral fracture and exposed tibia and a fractured fibula. Now, the tibia is not fractured on this, um, but there's lots of exposed tendon and uh, sort of high kinetic energy uh, 
uh, damage to the musculature and exposed Achilles at the back. So this again was taken for debridement and back to get wound control, which I think is key with the use of BTM. And then that on the photograph on the left shows about 11 days afterwards when, when the granulation is just starting to appear. And then we applied BTM to his wounds with a little bit of burring of the tibia just to get some bleeding. And that integrated. Now, normally we'd have put a free flap on this. That's what one of that's a, this is a case I've done, which is a, a free rectus uh, flap of a very large tibial defect. Well, this is the case after BTM. This is a different case. This is this case, sorry, after BTM, 18 months later. Uh, and he's fully functional. Now, it's always nice to, to think you might be able to stop amputations. I'll present this gentleman. He's an 80-year-old gentleman who has cardiac sarcoid and uh, insulin-dependent diabetes, as well as peripheral vascular disease. Now, he caught his leg in an airplane seat um, and then sustained a non-necrotizing uh, soft tissue infection for which he ended up in a ICU in a foreign land for four weeks where he's put on inotropes and then he was repatriated. And this was the leg when he came back to us with pseudomonas and MRSA in it. Because you can see he's got exposed tendon, exposed tibia, exposed tibialis anterior tendon. Um, and he, every time he gets a wound at home, it's a problem uh, in that it takes ages to heal. And yet we've got this to deal with. And I said to him basically, well, you're probably gonna end up with your leg amputating, but if I can get a response with a vac dressing, get some bright red granulations going, then I think we can possibly try using uh, BTM. And that's what we did. We took it for debridement and then applied a vac dressing. And after eight weeks of vac, we started. It took us that long to get the bright red granulations that we like to see. But still, he's got the exposed bones. Still, he's got the exposed tendon. And I filleted the, uh, the toes because I didn't feel there was much point in trying to keep those, given that the bones and the toes are exposed. So I took off the tendons there and filleted the toes. But even the fillet flap on the toes, failed distally. Um, anyway, once we burred the tibia and, and put the um, put the BTM on, that continued to integrate. And nine months later, he had at least legs that he could walk on. And this gentleman is a 56-year-old type 2 diabetic with pulmonary vascular disease. Now, this gentleman had already had a right BKA and a left forefoot amputation, and this is his left leg, and it's a necrotizing fasciitis. So we were expecting to have to give him his second uh, below knee amputation, and this is what his leg looked like uh, after the first debridement in the rural hospital. Then he was brought to our centre, and he underwent another debridement, and a back dressing was applied. And when, that, when we do that, we tend to put cuts longitudinal cuts in the tendon to try and get some vascularity through the tendon to the surface. BTM was applied and then slowly and surely it integrated. It took eight and a half weeks, which is not typical, but when you're doing big areas of tendon or bone, you give it longer. Then it was delaminated and grafted and the graft had taken and he went back to, he went back to the country. Now, I've been asked to say, when does BTM not work? And this is the classic situation. I don't, I don't do it anymore. I've done two or three of these. These are ORN calvaria. Um, this gentleman had skin cancer previously, and he's got a bit of dead bone at the outer table. So you burr it down, get it bleeding, um, create a defect. We put BTM in there, and it took, and it integrated, and that was fine. Then we delaminated, we put the skin graft on, that took, and that was fine. But what happens is about four months later, and it's done it in every every case of ORN that I've done. It just 
doesn't sustain the skin graft and it dies back and you end up with exposed bone again. So I still maintain that for these, a vascularized flap is a better option. So the lessons I've learned from using BTM is that BTM can really simplify complex problems in complex patients, patients where you're maybe not happy to do the, the usual reconstruction options that you would, you would normally choose. Um, but be aware of confounding factors, you know, Think of the, if the patient's had radiotherapy or if there's peripheral vascular disease or they're on anticoagulation, um, because difficult wounds are still difficult even with BTM. So it's really important to optimize patients and optimize the wound uh, before you use it. The wound has to be adequately divided. You, you try and keep it as, as infection-free as you can see and as you can do. And obviously, if you can get a better blood supply to the leg um, with either, you know, with um, with revascularization or angioplasty, then then um, get better glycemic control. All those things, they still those rules still apply. Anyway, that's all I've got to say for today. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Wagstaff. That was a, a really a whistle stop tour through the versatility of BTM applications, and congratulations on such brilliant functional anaesthetic outcomes uh, in some of these really challenging reconstructive cases. Uh, so really impressive. And can I just say sort of take home message for um, sort of viewers as to starting to use BTM in their clinical practice when they're starting out, what sort of practical tips in terms of handling the skin substitute itself would you offer? Well, the first piece of advice is, is try not to use it in the wound that you can't use anything else in, the most difficult wound that you can see, which tends to be what people do because they think, well, I haven't got any other options, so I'm going to pick this new thing I've never used before and put that on and expect that to work. Um, so it's always good to pick a wound that you are comfortable with, uh, maybe a necrotizing fasciitis wound that's already started to granulate, that's clean, that you want to get a good result, reduce contracture and get, get a nice robust, um, uh, thicker, thicker reconstruction, rather than perhaps the, you know, the chronic diabetic foot ulcer, which you, you, you really didn't think anything was going to work on anyway. Um, so I think I'd go for something that you feel comfortable with and that you think will work and then you'll get a start to get a feel for what it looks like as it integrates. The other thing is make sure that you um, have your entire team on board. So the nursing staff need to know what you're doing. They need to have seen presentations. They need to have seen what it looks like when it integrates. We've had stories of nursing staff who, who say, you know, the, the consultant's gone on, the doctor's gone on, on leave, the nursing staff has taken the dressing down, thought it was part of the dressing and taken it off. So it, it, everybody needs to be fully engaged with, with what you're doing and why. Um, and then they'll, they'll come on board. And also once you've trained your nursing staff, you can train your nursing staff to express the collections and so you don't have to be there. The other thing I'd advise is when you're starting out is to be at every dressing change, learn how it changes, learn how it looks, learn how it looks in older patients against younger patients because it's slower, learn how it looks in sicker patients or over bone or over tendon because it has different appearances. And you'll get used to that. You'll get used to seeing blood in the BTM. That's a good thing. Um, if you see really dark blood, that's it. that will all dissolve with time. Um, you don't need to try and express it if it's in the, in the BTM. If it's a big lump of blood, you might wanna just split the BTM and clean that out and relay it. And that still works. Um, but you need to get used to that you know, in, your, in, in the early stages. And um, the other thing is take photographs of everything. I never know when I start doing 
you know, treating a patient for even the most mild thing, what, what it's going to turn out to be, what's going to happen in two weeks' time. And I, I've had so many occasions where I wish I'd taken photographs at the beginning, but I didn't. Um, and I don't have that record, and I don't have that record to share. So I'm really, really passionate about taking photographs at every stage, every time you see BTM, every, you know, because the week after there may be something you want to relate back to, or you want to look at, or you want to tell someone about. And so taking photographs of everything, always keep a record, is, is really important. Thank you very much, Dr. Wagstaff. Next, we're going to talk about fish skin technology and its application for reconstruction of wounds. And we're going across to you, Dr. Lantis. Uh, I've got Professor John Lantis, who is Professor and Chief of Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital. Uh, welcome to you, Professor Lantis. Thank you. Uh, so Dr. Lantis, we'll come to you um, and just hear a little bit about your experience. You have been a, a leading expert in skin substitutes. I've seen many of your presentations and a lot of your excellent papers. Um, what would you say has been the biggest change over the last few decades in your clinical practice in relation to skin substitutes? So I think one of the things would be that uh, you know, there's been a much wider acceptance of skin substitutes. And obviously there have been there's you know exponential growth of these, and that's why we're doing our, our educational program today. But I think there is much more recognition that we can augment uh, patients' healing with these various products that we're hearing about today, uh, and that that general acceptance has also led to better uh, availability for our patients. Uh, I think there's still a lot of questions to be answered, but we definitely are uh, experimenting and, and looking into these novel products. Uh, much more arduously than we were 20 years ago. Thanks very much, Dr. Lantis. And uh, uh, we're interested to come and hear from you about your experience, clinic, clinical cases with fish skin technology. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me today. I look forward to discussing this with you. Thanks very much. So once again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about acellular fish skin for chronic wounds. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, talk with the uh, global audience. So the first question is, what is it? So we're going to be talking about using actual Icelandic codfish skin for medical use. Uh, this is uh, consists of an acellular um, material once we're done with it. But when fish skin initially is obviously cellular, and as I'll show you shortly, surprisingly like uh, human skin in many in many ways. So this was uh, first patented by an Icelandic company. I think many of you are probably familiar with them. And uh, using the generic term acellular fish skin, but they are the only uh, FDA and CE marked uh, product, FDA uh, cleared and CE marked product uh, that is a fish skin. Like human uh, skin, fish skin does contain cells and a biologic matrix. Uh, in this case, the cells are removed from the product. And this is also interestingly, uh, actually created and made in Isifirthur, Iceland, and all the energy used for this is renewable, so there are no fossil fuels burned when uh, taking care of this biologic product. It's decellularized and sterilized and then packaged for our ongoing use. To be clear, uh, most it's very, very uh, rare for anybody to have a any type of inflammatory or allergic reaction to fish, 
that's not true with shellfish, but of course this is codfish skin and not shellfish. Uh, fundamentally, uh, this is done in an FDA compliant fashion where uh, the skin is uh, taken uh, directly from the fresh caught Atlantic codfish stock of uh, the Northern Atlantic uh, brought to the, uh, the actual factory. Uh, at that point in time, it is decellularized. Interestingly, it does not require very harsh chemical uh, intervention because there are no viruses that can be transmitted from cold water fish to humans. So it doesn't require some of the uh, other very harsh chemical uh, treatments that uh, other mammalian xenografts uh, require. This preserves some of the omega-3 fatty acids. So one of the unique portions of this product is it's the only extracellular matrix uh, that retains uh, fat. All the other ones have been defatted by a portion of their treatment process. You can see a combination of the things that are uh, still present uh, in these. And if you compare fish skin to human allografts, to embryotic tissue, uh, you can see that there are various differences. And quite frankly, acellular fish skin is very, very like uh, human skin, but obviously unlike using a patient's own skin, placing it does not require any uh, wounding of the patient. So this comes out of a box with a, a long shelf life. We'll talk about that in a bit. The way to really think of this is this is a dermal scaffold, a xenograft. And if you move from left to right on this slide, you can think about products that modulate the wound bed. And this product definitely modulates the wound bed. And we see that over time as we reapply the product uh, you know, sequentially. So this falls in the, the uh, category of a multiple use product. Uh, and you can have a single application in the operating room or you can have multiple applications outpatient and we use it both ways. There's a natural 3D structure that is very similar to human skin. In the bottom right, you see a electron, a scanning electron micrograph of human skin compared to fish skin. You can see there's a lot of similarities to this. You can see the product being stretched on the top right. Uh, and obviously you can see the scale pattern, but those scales have been removed because the scales are functionally a fish's epidermis. And this, so this is really a fish's dermis. And again, the dermis uh, looks very similar. On the bottom left-hand side, you can see the idea this lipid-rich uh, biologic barrier can be placed directly into wound and then engrafts into that patient. So this is the functional component of how this product works. And here's just a blown up uh, picture of the uh, previously alluded to picture showing the very uh, similarities to these from an electron micrograph standpoint. I'm sorry. In this case, um, you can see the cell in growth. In the top picture, you can see uh, stained cells, uh, fibroblasts, actually growing into this ideal uh, porosity that you see in the fish skin on the top left-hand side. Whereas on the bottom, you can see the cells just stacking up on top of an amnion chorion product. And in part, the pore size of the acellular fish skin uh, allows for the patient's own fibroblasts to move directly into that uh, tissue. And it probably turns out that about a pore size of around uh, 100 uh, microns is about just the sweet spot for these fibroblasts to move into that tissue. Here you can see what the tissue looks like after application. Uh, this is uh, no, there's no artificial cross-linking in this product. It goes away quite quickly. And in some cases that's uh, fantastic, such as when you want to skin graft directly on top of the wound. 
Below you see on the left what human skin looks like. You can see that uh, there's no artificial cross-linking in the fish skin. This is a, a pig model uh, in a uh, pig model of uh, burn where you can see that the product is gone after about one week's time. And this is in comparison to fetal bovine uh, tissue, which actually also has very little uh, artificial cross-linking, but stays around a lot longer and therefore may prevent you from uh, skin grafting so early. This is a robust product. It actually comes meshed. You can mesh it with the mesher, as you see on the left-hand side, but you can actually purchase it in a mesh fashion. And I, quite frankly, if you want it meshed, I would recommend doing that. It is best if surgically affixed. And in my hands, we do use staples at times. We also use a lot of uh, promix sutures uh, to, to affix the material. And you can see it comes in very large sheets. Uh, codfish are you know, a very large fish, so you can get large sheets of this for the OR use, as well as for outpatient uh, use in much smaller fashions. Slightly uh, similar to the slide you saw before, but not quite the same. You can see that uh, intact fish skin continues to have proteoglycans and glycosaminoglycans that are very important, but it also has elastin, laminin, and fibronectin in it. Uh, this is different than many of the uh, processed mammalian tissues, again, because of that harsh chemical environment required for those mammalian tissues. Taking a look at the fish skin as compared to human skin, but also other things that we use, the xenograft or porcine urinary bladder has much larger pore size. Human amnion chorion has very small pore size, and then porcine uh, small intestinal submucosa, uh, probably back to having about the uh, exact right pore size, but not the thickness. And fish skin, as you use it clinically, is actually relatively thick compared to many of the other tissues other than human dermis that we may use in artificial skin. And this is a picture looking at uh, the uh, fibroblasts as they move into keratosis, just uh, you know, proliferating within the tissue, uh, stained in a much more attractive fashion maybe, but this shows migration and proliferation. These were actually from a, a presentation that was originally uh, shown in Copenhagen many years ago, taking a look at the speed with which fibroblasts migrate across this tissue, uh, which was superior to the speed at which my, uh, fibroblasts migrated across uh, amnion chorion products. So how is it used? Uh, you best to use, remove necrotic tissue, remove the exudate and control the bleeding to some degree, although you want to have some bleeding. The product comes in a sterile pouch, so you keep it in that pouch usually and moisten it in there with normal saline. You cut the sheet thoroughly to size uh, and then apply, and I'll take you through that step by step at this point. You can see here it's important to remove all necrotic tissue. Uh, get the wound as clean as you can. Take the edges of that necrotic tissue off and do this as uh, in a clean fashion. We usually pre-prep these wounds with uh, probidine iodine, and then we wash them down with normal saline prior to applying the acellular fish skin. The product is then cut to size. Uh, we measure the material. You obviously want to use the pieces that is the closest in size to the color of the wound. There may be some color variations. If we're using a solid piece, we usually fenestrate it. We cut it to shape and size when it is dry, but we uh, punch holes in it with a 15 blade actually when it is wet after it's been hydrated. You can see us here soaking it in normal saline prior to suturing it in place. Usually that takes about one minute. As I alluded to, we like to cut it actually when it's dry 
uh, place it directly into the wound. We do like it to go into the edges as much as possible with a little overlap, although some overlap is okay if you're stapling, uh, and we adjust that sheet size appropriately. Uh, Dr. Lantis, are you, with, with that technique, are you doing similar to what you're doing with a skin graft in a cavity? So are you overlapping such that the sides of the defect are also covered? Um, That's a then... great question. And yes, we definitely are. We are, we'll uh, let it wrap up around the sides. Although if you have a piece and myself and many of my colleagues who use this, if you don't have the right size piece, you just can't get the size that quite fits the wound. Uh, many of us have, who have a lot of experience with this product have good outcomes with just actually kind of morselating or chopping the product up almost, if you will. And it actually does come that way commercially. You can buy it that way too. And not covering the entire wound. I prefer to cover the entire wound, as you alluded to. And one thing that I think is in my tips and tricks at the end, um, but I'll actually suture the product directly into the base of the wound using a uh, usually absorbable suture, usually a, a cat gut or chromic stitch right into the base of the wound. So here on the left-hand side in this slide, you'll see a picture uh, that shows us not completely uh, covering the entire wound. Um, another key, so we do it both ways, but we prefer to get it right to the edges, much like a skin graft. And using deep quilting stitches in those defects where it's uh, obviously exactly. Exactly. a lot of shear forces, yeah. Yeah, exactly. To get it really, to, we don't want it to tent. We wanna make sure that it doesn't pick up and tent. So you're absolutely right. And then we also like to keep it moist. So we often, if the wound has a chance or certainly the first dressing change, which for me, if I do these in the operating room or even in the office, that's usually one week after uh, we put it on. But I'll often use a hydrogel on top of the wound uh, to make sure that it stays moist. Because we, we joke about it, but like we do say that the fish really doesn't like to be out of water. That sounds corny, but it, it, we do like to keep it moist. And it does seem to do that well. Some people have not experienced where they thought the wound wasn't doing well with fish skin and then have moistened the product and seen that it does very well. We tend to use a lot of foams of various brands directly over, over our uh, skin substitutes in general, but certainly with fish skin. So the follow-up, uh, we inspect the wound usually every seven days. Uh, this really depends on the amount of exudate. We clean the wound uh, area around, but not the wound base itself. If previously applied sheets of the uh, material are there and are adherent to the wound bed, we do not remove them. Uh, also, if there's stuff that's really missing and we're gonna reapply something, we actually will debride the wound bed slightly prior to putting the next piece on. And we really, as you can see in the bottom, we really try to never let that wound bed get dry. How is it stored? This product is, uh, you know, easy from that standpoint, it comes at room temperature, it's in sterile packaging, which is, uh, has a minimum uh, that I've ever seen of a two-year shelf life. It usually comes in a box of 10. So once you have one on your shelf, you have the next uh, five applications, you may need outpatient available to you easily. That could be a little different uh, based on geographic area, but, and its indications are all partial and full thickness wounds, diabetic foot wounds, venous leg ulcers, pressure ulcers, post-surgical wounds, atypical wounds, burns, and skin graft donor sites. To take you through some of the basic science quickly here, but uh, Fishkin, when it first really came to the US market uh, in a publication in 2015, was compared in punch biopsies in healthy uh, patients to commercially available porcine submucosa. 
So these were young, healthy individuals, uh, all in Iceland, uh, where they underwent forearm punch biopsies acting as their own control. So there were uh, 81 patients, 162 wounds. One wound was treated with porcine submucosa, and the other wound was uh, treated with fish skin, and they were followed out for 25 days. Now, all of these wounds were going to heal. They, they, these were young, healthy people. But they healed more quickly. Uh, there was a significant improvement in overall healing by roughly 105% relative. Um, so 10 versus five patients, if you will, in the first 14 days, by 21 days, the numbers had caught up because the patients are going to go on to heal. But there was a statistically significant improvement with no negative outcomes for the patients treated with Fishkin. So these are two xenografts, right? These are two different xenografts compared to each other. To change that up a little bit, uh, about five years later, took a look at the same model fundamentally, followed out to uh, four weeks where the Fishkin was used versus an Amnion Corion product, exact same model, healthy uh, young volunteers, a uh, little bit of reimbursement to undergo the trouble, but still volunteers. Uh, and taking a look at these patients, so in this case, it was 85 patients, 170 wounds, and you can see that the relative improvement for these acute wounds in healthy patients was still statistically significant throughout for treatment of the uh, acellular fish skin. So a very robust um, you know, response in the acute wound setting. That's moved on to looking at your standard diabetic foot wound, and this was uh, published more recently but taking a look at diabetic foot wounds with appropriate offloading with weekly application of acellular fish skin. And at six weeks, a very significant improvement of acellular fish skin versus uh, the standard of care with a 67% uh, closure rate out uh, at 12 weeks and a very you know, statistically significant difference between these two uh, populations. So a very standard uh, diabetic foot wound model. There will be a new trial coming out from Europe uh, multi-country multi trial that will be published looking at deeper wounds with bone and tendon. And I can tell you that that's had a, a statistically significant improvement in the overall uh, healing of those complex patients. So really those those kind of wounds would be the ones that typically you wouldn't have been able to use a skin substitute, would have had to use flap reconstruction for. You're absolutely right again. Yes, that's a so that's a, a much sicker group of patients who um, you know, are harder to heal theoretically where you have bone or tendon exposed and would usually require some form of flap or whether free flap or rotational flap um, and, and or negative pressure wound therapy, uh, which we're able to avoid that. So that will be that will be yet to be uh, published, but uh, upcoming soon. Uh, this is a group of patients just quickly looking at um, actually the uh, burn donor site. These are patients who are undergoing um, a, a split thickness skin graft and just putting this on, again, acute wounds, partial thickness wounds, obviously, but we all know anybody who's in the plastic surgery world or general surgery, vascular surgery world, the skin grafts knows that uh, the patients often complain more of their donor site than they do of whatever you grafted. In this case, the patient, as you can see, not only uh, healed more quickly in the uh, wounds on their thighs, they also had decreased pain and overall uh, better, uh, you know, infection control or signs of uh, clinical infection. So fundamentally significant improvement in partial thickness, again, in patients who are getting skin grafts for other things, but this is just treating their skin graft site. 
Economically, uh, in the U.S. in Indianapolis, uh, Dr. Winters uh, did an interesting study where he took a look at the overall cost savings of using uh, fish skin, and because of reducing uh, amputation in his population, uh, speeding the time to healing of diabetic foot ulcers, there was a significant uh, cost reduction uh, in just one year by using fish skin versus using standard of care. And this was uh, modeled and published in uh, 2020. So when we take a look at how this works, just to run through some cases, this is a above knee amputation that was debrided. Uh, and then you know, you know, had some granulation tissue after about seven weeks of weekly fish skin. You can see the fish skin in the middle of this wound and then went on to heal at 21 weeks. So this was a post-surgical uh, wound in a diabetic uh, who actually had adequate nutrition. And you can see that after debridement, that really kind of continued to move along all the way uh, through, uh, through closure. That's the other wound. There are actually two wounds. This is the medial wound. The other one's the lateral wound on the same uh, above knee amputation with slightly faster healing on the smaller wound, which is not to be, you know, not, which is not surprising. Diabetic uh, foot wound, uh, really a Wegener three type of wound down uh, up to and including potentially uh, bone. So maybe a Wegener four. And after 10 weeks of treatment with acellular fish skin, uh, the, the wound continued to improve very nicely out to three and a half uh, months when it was completely closed, as well as the end of the toes. This is a patient with, again, a, a post-surgical uh, you know, post ulcer in the lower extremity, relatively deep cavity. Uh, material was placed in in day one. You can see it's completely gone on day four. A lot of granulation tissue and you know, out at six weeks, fundamentally completely closed. Although there's a little bit of small granulation tissue there, which we would take care of with uh, silver nitrate. Think you can see the characteristic uh, idea here of pinch grafts. So the wound beds uh, in this case was uh, didn't look very good, but pinch grafts have been put down onto this wound bed. And uh, one of the individuals in Iceland who's done a lot of work with this uses a lot of pinch grafts. He's a dermatologist and has found that actually using uh, acellular fish skin on top of pinch grafts. Some people have used acellular fish skin on top of true skin grafts. I have not done that personally, and there's not much written about that. But it is interesting how it has a protective effect on top of these uh, pinch grafts. And you can see how uh, they expanded over the course of two and a half weeks to uh, really make a significant difference in this uh, patient with clearly uh, profound venous stasis disease. Using uh, negative pressure wound therapy with acellular fish skin, Obviously, this patient needs better debridement. So you go ahead and debride the patient uh, much more adequately. Uh, they got debrided in negative pressure wound therapy for three days, then had application of fish skin, still with exposed tendon, you may notice here. And then they went on over the course of uh, two weeks. And this is one of the things that was shown in pig studies as well. And some of the berm literature is these patients can sometimes be skin grafted very early. So this patient underwent skin grafting at two weeks time. And certainly if you have a patient who you really want to skin graft in a short period of time, uh, I think you should think about uh, acellular fish skin because it makes a very exuberant base. Uh, now, just to be clear, you can definitely stop the um, negative pressure wound therapy 
and still get that exuberant base. So for us, we'll use fish skin and negative pressure wound therapy for just four days and then potentially go on and skin graft that as early as one week after application of the acellular fish skin. So essentially it's converting a previously non-graftable bed uh, with structures that were typically traditionally not graftable into potentially graftable, if not a wound that heals purely with the skin substitute. Exactly. And that's what we see right here uh, in this uh, slide where we have the cadaveric skin compared uh, to the uh, fish skin. Uh, fish skin is on the top and the cadaveric skin is on the bottom. And of course, both of these are on such a large wound are going to require um, a, a eventual skin graft. And you can say that the timeline here is not that significantly different because uh, the way this study was set up but the, the cosmetic appearance and functionality may be slightly improved on the fish skin versus doing this with cadaveric human skin. Uh, but we have seen that in the animal models, the timeline is significantly sped up. And I think if you're really talking to a clinician and say, why don't you try to skin graft this as soon as you can, or think it's ready, uh, that fish skin may really speed up the overall process. So, in closing, what wounds should you not use it for? Probably acutely infected wounds, wounds that have uh, cellulitis. Obviously, you're going to want to get that cellulitis under control, wounds that have not been adequately debrided. Um, you don't want to put it over untreated osteomyelitis, so you don't have a bone infection that is not being adequately treated with IV antibiotics, and certainly not indicated to put directly over either bowel or vascular anastomoses. Tips and tricks, always uh, cut the, the product to size when it's dry, uh, fenestrate when it's wet, suture in uh, when possible using chromic sutures or other absorbable sutures. Uh, as uh, Nedjan uh, definitely pointed out, I, I really like the idea of the quilting stitch uh, because I hadn't really used that term before, but sewing into the base of the wound, where like quilting it into the wound can be helpful. Um, it does work best on a bleeding wound bed. I did not present uh, literature that we published uh, about six years ago. And to be quite frank, we did use this product on venous stasis ulcers, and they were a group of venous stasis ulcers specifically that we really couldn't debreed due to pain. Um, so I do have experience using this on suboptimally prepared beds, and I, I have to say it, it actually worked quite well, but in general, if you can get it debrided, it's going to do better. And then, as I mentioned, please keep it hydrated. That's going to have your best results. Uh, if you don't keep it hydrated, if you come have the patient come back in a week and the product seems very dry, the two tricks there are to either put a hydrogel on it or to take an 18 gauge needle and puncture right through the product directly into the wound bed and get some of that patient's autogenous blood uh, out for you. So, those are uh, my tips and tricks and my thoughts about using acellular fish skin. And thank you so much for paying attention. I look forward to uh, potentially answering some questions later. Thank you, Prof Professor Lantis. That was really a, an outstanding presentation on the versatility of acellular uh, fish skin technology. Um, can I just ask you, in terms of... Um, the future of this kind of skin substitutes and, and in your practice as a, as a surgeon, a vascular surgeon, what do you kind of envisage, you know, surgeons practicing in the next five to 10 years? What do you think will be the next stage of skin substitute technology? Well, I think the one thing is we have to develop better algorithms. Right now, the skin substitute technologies are very helpful. 
Um, but I look at wounds, and I think a lot of my colleagues do as well, uh, look at wounds much like you do a cancer. We need to use things, you know, no one therapy is right for everything. And maybe not every one therapy needs to come uh, be used continuously. So in other words, we might be better off by using product X for three weeks prior to using, you know, fish skin. And then we'd be better off using um, a spray on human skin or something after that. And we could, you know, the goal here is we still have these lengths of time that we're very familiar with that we start to say, well, if I use fish skin over the course of five months, I can heal 60% of this type of wound or over 12 weeks, I can heal this. But obviously we'd like to get those shorter. And what we're not doing a lot with these products yet is really looking at how to layer them or using them either synchronously or metachronously. I mean, the main thing we look at at the moment is do we use fish skin with or without negative pressure, for example. Um, and so we don't know the right answers to that. I also think I will say that this new area of the, um, of the non-biologic, and you did a very nice job in the introduction, you pointed out this is a biologic agent, but we have these new non-biologic uh, matrix-like products coming out as well. I will say for Fishkin, you know, it, it, there's not an unlimited source, but they're, we're using such a small percentage of the fish that are out there for this product at the moment. We, we don't have a problem with availability, et cetera. But I think that uh, really using things uh, either metachronously or synchronously, we can get better results. But right now, we keep, for obvious scientific reasons, we study one thing at a time. But over time, hopefully we'll build algorithms of care for specific diseases that can give us um, outcomes that we're more familiar with from such as the oncology world, where we can say, if we do these things, we know we have an 80% chance. If we do these things, we have a 90% chance. If we do these things, we have a 30% chance you know, in some terrible disease. But I think we can do a better job there. It's always a challenge, isn't there? Because there's sort of this pattern recognition where uh, clinicians may be more comfortable in using certain amounts of dressings, certain types of dressings and certain technologies and somehow making the patient's clinical picture fit that technology that they prefer to use. Obviously, even the dressing regime protocols that you've all spoken about. When you get used to that sort of similar to obviously when you were grafting, you would do your grafting, you would do an earlier or a late graft check, and then you would check the wound thereafter uh, once a week, twice a week, et cetera. So you do get into a, a pattern of how you like to manage the patient, the timing, the regime, and then to kind of break free from that and say, well, actually, let's see what the other options that might be suitable for this kind of wound. So I think for me, it was very helpful seeing the whole panel's scope of clinical um, applications in terms of scalp defects, lower limb defects, DFUs, burns, etc. And just seeing, you know, the whole host of possibilities there are. And, and obviously at Wound Masterclass, we, our emphasis is on evidence-based innovation and you know uh, the the viewers at home i know that you've you've enjoyed the, the last 60 minutes and uh, don't forget to register for the wound masterclass academy where you can have um free access to all these master series events uh, so thank you very much gentlemen thank you for spending the last 60 minutes with us and uh, we're delighted to to offer this for free to our global audience thank you at home for watching as well 
don't forget to join the Wound Masterclass Academy and you can join us at woundmasterclass.com slash register and this will give you access to AMA CPD credits uh, for all our online summit series, master series and podcasts. And so thank you very much for joining us again tonight and thank you very much to the global panel. I look forward to seeing you next time. Stay tuned. You can watch this. Obviously, you've watched us live and this is also available on demand on all platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Wilmaster Glass website.